from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hello, I'm the Washington Post. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 18th. Today, the unique vulnerability of Asian spa workers and what to do about your Zoom fatigue. Tuesday night in the Atlanta area, 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long appeared to target three Asian businesses. They were all spas, I think within an hour of each other. He shot and killed eight people, six of whom were women of Asian descent. Anne Brannigan is a reporter for The Lily. She spoke to editor Alexis Diao. And just a warning, this conversation might be hard to hear, especially for victims of sexual violence. I think it's impossible to separate it from the larger discourse that's been happening over the last year around heightened fear in the Asian American community. I think that was the context through which I read it. So I didn't really see the story until Wednesday morning. And there was just this really visceral outpouring of grief, fear that felt very immediate, but also this sense of being targeted. And when you heard that it was Asian spas, specifically, what did that signal to you? Well, that became, I think, very difficult to navigate for a lot of people, right? Because there is such an association with Asian spas and sexualization. So this was something that, for me, it felt very specific, both, you know, racially, but also the fact that there is such a close association with Asian women and this kind of work. And even as we're learning more about who died in these attacks, you know, it's Thursday morning and there's still a lot we don't know. I don't think it was possible to escape this feeling of this very deliberate, specific attack that was influenced by by gender and by race. I want to unpack how class comes into this conversation. And you've been looking into the unique vulnerabilities of, you know, Asian American women and who who work in places like spas. Um, and what have you found in your reporting? So what I found is that this is so layered. I think it's important to start with there is kind of this this tension even within Asian and Asian American advocates, right? about how to talk about this. You have some advocates who really will stress that it's important to step back and think about the ways all Asian American women will experience like this very sexualized racism, right? That's something that cuts across age, it cuts across social class, it cuts across regions, you know? Like that's something that is widely shared in a diaspora that has many different kinds of lived experiences in it, which is pretty striking. But when we're talking about the women who were killed Tuesday night in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area, 
They were vulnerable in very specific ways. And they were vulnerable because there were low-wage workers in a service industry that's very oriented toward the body. You know, so there is some commonality between spa workers and nail techs, Asian women who work in um, hair salons. These are women who are often unprotected in very specific ways that are tied to their immigration status. You know, quite a few folks are migrant workers or they're undocumented. They might have really substantial English language barriers, which not only makes it difficult to report, assuming that they would want to report the harassment they face or the vulnerabilities that they face, but they might not even understand their rights as workers. So if somebody denies them a paycheck, if a supervisor harasses them, they are so limited in what they're able to do. Okay. Hi, can you hear me all right? Yes. Okay, perfect. All right. So to get us started, um, if you could... So I talked to some organizers who have deep connections to Georgia specifically. So among them is Leng Leng Chansey from 9 to 5, which does a lot of work specifically with low-wage workers across different industries. Focusing on low-wage um, women workers especially, and, you know, they already face so many hurdles. You know, they're impacted by discrimination, harassment, sexual assault. And most of them, I would say, will never report any of this because they're afraid of losing their jobs. A lot of people will stress, who work closely with these communities, will stress that they don't want to be visible because that visibility can mean harm for them. Whether it's raids of these businesses, which are quite common because of the association with sex work, either perceived or real. They are the targets of police raids. They are funneled through the criminal justice system. For some women, this ends in deportation for them. You know, especially here in the South, you know, we have police departments, sheriff's department working with ICE. I think the community already has heightened fear about what, you know, what that could bring and what that looks like for many of their friends and families in the community. So I think, you know, like adding more policing is not going to solve the problem. So this visibility is really, really fraught for this class of workers. And that's something that's really important to understand. And I want to make sure this story is still unfolding. We're not totally clear on, you know, the women who were killed, the people that were killed. Questions about the people that were killed are not yet answered. Yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of talk about trafficking in this story. Walk me through that and what we do know about it. You know, well, as you mentioned, there's a lot that we are still learning about who was killed. Um, specifically, you know, we it was confirmed by the South Korean embassy that four of the women who were killed were of Korean ethnicity. But there's still a lot that has been hard to kind of find out about them. But with regard to trafficking, there is a history of these businesses being associated with human trafficking, with sex trafficking. It is a real connection, but we also have to be careful about that connection because, again, we do not know the specifics about these businesses, and we're still learning about that. There's just so much nuance, right? Because 
there might have been a connection to the business, but that doesn't mean every worker in the business has that connection. So there's so many intersections at play here that we have to be very careful about when we're reporting. I got the sense from advocates that they didn't want to jump to conclusions about these women's lives because it is there are so many stereotypes around that sort of work. There are women who choose to enter into sex work in those conditions. And that sometimes gets erased because we can become very attached to this story of trafficking, for example. And so there are all sorts of layers. So even within this environment where there is a lack of protection generally, there are myriad experiences even within this this very specific environment. Mm. Connie Wun, I think, really opened my eyes to a lot of the nuance and complications that are an important part of this story. I don't think we can remove the fact that he said he had these sexual, you know, how do you call them, issues, um, and took them out on massage parlor workers. We can't divest and separate the two. Um, we can't. We can't separate that. So Connie is the co-founder of AAPI Women Lead, which takes a very intersectional approach to. Um, the experiences of Asian and Asian-American women. With Connie One in particular, she really emphasized like the need to be specific about who was affected, that it is a part of the story, whether we're comfortable with it or not, that it appears from what we know now to be part of Long's motive. He wanted, you know, he himself blamed a sexual addiction and this was something that he for he needed to cleanse in a way and there were reports that he was planning to go to Florida to target the porn industry so in his mind there appears to be this connection you know this very strong connection to these parlors and sex and whether that is rooted in reality or not it had consequences we can't separate these women's deaths from him wanting to go to the porn industry. Because um, that'll make, that that is what made them vulnerable and that will make other women vulnerable to similar um, forms of violence if we don't name the industry that they are also a part of. And, you know, Connie really emphasized that it's important not to shy away from that. Um, and I would add that uniformly, Something that came up with every single person I talked to, uh, whether they were working on the national or the local level, was that the solutions have to be specific. They have to center low-wage Asian workers. They have to center women specifically. And that some of the solutions that have been brought up, like increased policing or making hate crimes you know, more stringent and robust, they would not have protected those women. They would not have stopped Robert Aaron Long. And in many ways, they would leave these women more vulnerable. I think one quote that really stuck out to me was from Bianca Jyotishi when she said that the heightened fear makes people not want to share their stories. And that's important when we think about who's coming forward and sharing the harassment they experience. You know, often it's the people who've experienced the worst forms of discrimination and violence who are most fearful of speaking up about it. And we really have to recognize that. 
I don't know if I want to put this on the pod, but you know, I was, I'm a survivor of, um, attempted rape with gun violence. I had, I had someone target me and hold a gun to me in my own bedroom and the consequences are real, you know, and they're long lasting and it's a lot, it's a lot to bear and it's a lot to, um, I was very lucky. I was very lucky, but it's hard to see other women who look just like me or my mothers or my grandmothers not be so lucky. No, it's it's heartbreaking. And I think with a diaspora as big and variant as the Asian American one is, it can be sometimes challenging to lose sight of the very real cost and how those costs are not always shared equally by everybody. And there is this insistence, and I think rightfully so, to think about this as gender violence, as sexual violence, as much as it is felt to be racial violence, because those things are not separable for Asian and Asian American women living in this country. They're simply not, you know? Um, Yeah. And there's this sense, too, that, like, because Asian American women are um, soft, they're hypersexualized, we are hypersexualized, we are quiet, and we don't speak out, it makes us an easier target. It makes us basically, you know, a existing because, you know, people feel privileged to our bodies. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I keep thinking about. You know, that's the thing that I keep thinking about is like, people say like, oh, well, you know, you're a model minority or you're, you know, you're Asian American. So, so you're, you know, your plight and your struggles are, are like lesser because, you know, you guys are smart and you make money and, you know, because you're, you're pretty. And it's like, that doesn't make it easier. <laughs> um, it, it makes us um, invisible. Yeah, there's, there's a couple layers to this, too. I mean, there's so much that, that, that your comments really bring to the forefront for me. And it does make me think a lot about the conversations I've had yesterday, right? Where this perceived desirability, right? This fetishization of Asian women in some ways is sometimes cast as as, as though it's like a privilege, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Specifically in the context of how Asian men can be, you know, very overtly desexualized. But I don't think any Asian American woman who's been the target of that kind of attention feels that it has been advantageous or empowering. It makes you feel like an object. It makes you feel like you are seen as being in service. Yeah. This this idea that you are always functioning in some way to pleasure someone. That is a feeling that cuts across so many Asian American identities and it is rooted in colonialism, something that came up a lot was how it is rooted specifically in the American military and its presence in the Philippines and China and Japan, where there was a sex industry around these bases. 
but folks went home and carried those same stereotypes and expectations back with them. This idea of Asian women being pliable, Mm. of being sexual objects of sexual desire. Dispensable. Dispensable was a word that came up so many times. And that's exactly it. Anne Brannigan is a reporter for The Lily. Alexis Diao is an editor for Post Reports. The story was produced by Rena Flores. And now, one more thing about Zoom fatigue from reporter Paulina Ferrosi. Zoom fatigue is sort of the level of mental exhaustion that people feel after not just being on Zoom, but really any video conferencing. A communication professor at Stanford, Professor Jeremy Balenson, he started feeling this really early in the pandemic. He had had this week where he said he had nine hours a day of video conferencing. And at the end of the week, he was asked to go on another video conference and something he thought could have been done by phone. I think it was March 2020 that he was first starting to feel this video conference Zoom-related fatigue and, and started to look into, you know, why we might be feeling this way. And one of them was the excessive amount of high contact we engage in on video chats. Part of that is the size of the faces that we're looking at on the screen. You know, they're not, it's not natural. It's not the same. And so that's part of it is that prolonged direct eye contact, that close-up eye contact that's highly intense. And another reason is you're looking at yourself during video chats. You know, if you have your video on, the default setting is for your self-view to be on. So we've all gotten used to the fact that we're going to look at ourselves when we Skype with a friend, we Zoom with a friend, we Zoom with our colleagues. If someone was following you around with a mirror your whole day, your whole work day, you know, and you're looking at yourself while you do everything, it's unnatural. So Balenson had a few ideas for how to make the video calls a little bit less fatiguing for all of us. And one of them is is turning your self-view off. Another suggestion he had was to make the size of your screen smaller on your computer. So if you're if you're used to having the Zoom screen take up, you know, your entire computer or half of your computer, try doing a fourth of your computer screen, you know, putting taking that window and and minimizing it all the way to two inches even, he suggested. He said that, that he suggested um, to someone to do this, to make it a two-inch window, and, and they called it a game changer. It was just very different and, and a lot less overwhelming for a lot of different reasons to just have it as like a small window on your computer. So those were two solutions that he proposed that could just take a little bit of that mental taxing quality of our video conferences and just lighten the load a little bit on ourselves. Paulina Ferrosi covers national and breaking news for The Post. Jordan Marie Smith produced this story. 
And that's it for today's Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was mixed by Ted Muldoon. We are looking for stories about upcoming reunions after vaccination. Are you about to see your family or your friends or your book club for the first time in a year? Is your pickup softball team finally restarting? Are you going back to your favorite bar for the first time now that you're vaccinated? We would love to hear from you. Send a voice memo or an email to postreports at washpost.com telling us about your reunion. Or better yet, record it. You can use the voice memo app or take a video on your phone and email that to us too. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.